Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star, and the namesake. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is the third of four special uh, episodes we are uh, pre-recording because Victor will be traveling and we did not want there to be uh, a, a, a an empty zone with no Victor. So we had asked our listeners for questions and many sent in questions. So these are listener question special episodes. We thank those who have, have provided these. And Victor, today, uh, we'll try to get to at least two full questions and maybe part of a third, but the, we'll we'll talk about your thoughts on social media and then since this episode, I believe, is coming out on the 4th of July, um, I have a I have a, a World War II uh, question that I think just might be appropriate for the for the day. And we'll see what else we have time for. So we'll get to your social media thoughts, Victor, right after these important messages. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, uh, Nick from Clifton Park writes this. He says, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt has said it in his excellent book, The Righteous Mind, uh, an absolutely fantastic book, in my opinion, writes Nick from Clifton Park, stated, we are still in the infancy of social media. He likened it to the first year or two after television or newsprint became widely uh, communized, not communist, but communi com you know, community. Where do you, Victor Davis Hanson, see social media ending up? And what effects do you see and what time frame do you see this happening? That's I don't know if you have a crystal ball 
Victor, but, you know, maybe you have some thoughts on, are we in the, do you agree with hate? Are we in the infancy and any other broader thoughts you might have about uh, social media? Well, I think the big elephant in the room is artificial intelligence. Already professors are seeing students, you know, that can turn in papers that they didn't write and they just type in guidelines and then it spews it out. And we're put it this way. What we thought the Internet and social media were going to do was recreate in the terms of Facebook, the family Thanksgiving dinner only electronically or this church social on Twitter or Google was going to be all of the world's knowledge in your palm that turned out to warping Google searches or making sure Christmas was never there on the 25th on the head header on a Google search or the Russian disinformation or laptop suppression or FBI. So it deteriorated. And the problem with all of this is that it's, electronic sized in other words it's sped up so unlike the printed word or writing or reading or a book or a magazine that it's instant that's why you have people who will tweet 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 and make a fool of themselves and then all of a sudden will go down the so-called memory machine or they'll have a others will have a pro a program called the wayback machine to get it back out because it's kind of like electronic twitches or stutters or burps, and there's no reflection involved of all of the social media. It's just instant stream of consciousness. It can be good, but I I think it's becoming a bastardized, dangerous uh, form of communication. And I'm always struck by um, when I get letters in the mail, I get three or four a week from readers. They're always better composed more thoughtful than, and I don't write very many myself anymore than people that just post on Facebook. Not that you can't do it on email, but it's just, it just speeds up everything. And speed is the enemy of deliberation and audits. Mm -hmm. And so that that's a big problem. And then what are we talking about, Jack? We're talking about, I know that there's an Austin and there's a Portland and there's Seattle and there's a research triangle. There's little, uh, tolls of social media, but we're basically talking about 70 square miles in Silicon Valley or that 80 mile corridor between San Francisco and Sunnyvale. And we're talking about Facebook and Google and Apple and Oracle and all of those companies. And who works there? Well, it's people who come out of the Stanford, UC Berkeley nexus. And 99.9 of them are left-wing. 90.9.9 have no worldly experience outside of that suburb or suburbs like that. They've never driven a semi. They've never driven a tractor. They've never welded. They've never used a chainsaw. They don't know any. They've never hammered. They've never put on shingles. They have no experience with what most people have to contend with. And they control our thought processes. And they wire programs in that we don't know anything about, and they don't have any moral code. And what do I mean by that? That I mean that if I happen to, if I'm going to speak in Portland, University, say Reed College or something, and I come home, all of a sudden, Jack, I get ads that pop up on my phone from the Portland store. 
how did they know I was there? How did they do that? Or if I go onto Amazon and I want to buy a snow shovel, but I don't buy it, the next thing I know, it pops up that, hey, Victor, you might be interested in this. And there's like snow machines, all more yeah, expensive. For, and, for, and for like three weeks. <laughs> yes, three weeks. Yeah. Or if I go onto a site and I'm trying to look for a fuel pump for my truck, and I just, it says, for information about this, give us your email. If you do that, then it opens up the entire site. You see all the fuel pumps. And then for the rest of your life, you get from this little company somewhere and know who's ads every blank day about fuel pumps. And so it it's all comes out of the mind of the Silicon Valley coder, programmer, whatever you, and I know those people because I went to graduate school there. I taught at Stanford. I'm a Hoover fellow. I have, I, I visit there. I understand who they are and they're very, very dangerous people because they're self-righteous and they believe that their exalted ends justify any means of obtaining them. And they will doctor a program. These are the people, you know, that, that gave us they gave us the FBI hiring tw Twitter 1.0. These are the people that convinced Mark Zuckerberg gave $419 million to warp the registrar's work in key precincts in the 2020 election. So they're, they're capable of anything. And yeah. you put artificial intelligence, they are going to be the people who are programming it. And their morality is what the rest of us are going to follow. Just like right now, Sammy and I keep going back to that. We just said, I just out of the blue said, I'm going to do insurrection of 2020, Google. And I, I said, Sammy looks like, and I said, insurrection of 2020, 120 days of rioting when they took over police precincts, et cetera. And what comes up? January 6th came up. Yeah. Only came up. I had to go three pages before I got to, you know, Donald Trump fleeing the White House grounds under assault to go into a bunker. So that's what they do. And they have algorithms that we can't even imagine. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the, the documentary. It was like a jagged line. But Peter Schweitzer was involved in it. And it, it was about how easy it is to affect the algorithm. Look what they, they have more power. I mean, take yeah. little, little parlor right after they oh shut down, gosh. they shut, right. you know, the whole thing they, all they wanted to do was offer an alternative. Instead, they said, this is misinformation. This is disinformation. This is in rectoring. And all of a sudden, just by accident, Google and is it Amazon and Apple, they all collude and they yeah. take their apps off and you can't get on it. And that was sort of like, I don't know, Jay Gould or J.P. Morgan. And yet these are left wing people that make our 19th century monopolists look like pikers. So yeah. that's what I'm worried about. And any question when you talk about electronic communication, you're ultimately talking about about a couple hundred thousand people of a particular hardcore leftist persuasion that feel that they can program our ways of communication for a political ends. Yeah. And to cancel you. Um, Monopolies too. Google buys up about 200 companies a year. I think Eric Schmidt at one time bragged that he, he was buying up a company a day. 
And half the time they incorporate the company and half the time they just destroy it. So get rid of competition. They all do that. TikTok, YouTube, all of them do, you know. Well, um, I know you you engage just a little bit, just barely informational. Here's here's on Twitter. Here's our new podcast, The End, et cetera. I can, I, uh, so you're, you're there, but you're, you've as we discussed on a, one of these previous episodes you've got much more important things to well, do well i'm going to try my uh, my daughter uh Pauline you know she's a 40 year old mom and she has a disabled child and two other children and she's pretty busy but she's she's doing my uh, social media just to broadcast and she is much more adept than i am and she points out that if I would just give her some original commentary on the news, that it would help bring attention to other stuff we're doing. So I'm going to try to do that. I haven't done it very regularly, but I've done it four or five times and and she's been able to to do yeah, that. And yeah. she's she persuades me gently to to cooperate <laughs> with her. Well, it's a, there's a balance here. So, yeah. well, Victor, uh, that's uh, wonderful. Now I have a, another question, and this is from... BJ Swiss 79. This I remember seeing the bumper sticker. Who is John Galt? Before I knew of or actually read any Ayn Rand uh, uh, or actually read Ayn Rand's classic Atlas Shrugged. It seems as though we're living in her world now. What are your opinions on that book, assuming you've read it and her philosophy to the do the competent and Victor, I don't know. We've never discussed this before. So uh, let me finish this question. But I don't know if you've read Rand stuff. Do the competent of today need to start a new society for tomorrow? Uh, Victor, I've never read any Rand. I know of uh, my two things are, of course, I've seen The Fountainhead with Patricia Neal and Gary Cooper. And then I know some history of Bill Buckley's uh, um uh, battles early on with her not battles but uh you know con- confrontation with Ayn Rand who was a species meatball back in the day in New York City Victor uh any thoughts on Rand and any thoughts on that you know larger final question do the competent of today need to start a new society for tomorrow well I mean she was a a product of the dark face seeing trying to tell people what communism was like. And I, I read the fountainhead, I think in high school and I try, I read half of Atlas shrug. It's very difficult to read. She was not a stylist to tell you the truth. And sometimes the, the novels become not just libertarian, but or laissez faire, but they become kind of preachy, but you know, they've sold, I don't know, 40 or 50 million copies. So she's very influential in her, it's kind of a Nietzschean view of the world, John, that the world exists to suppress people who are talented that cause others to feel envy and inadequacy. And yet that very suppression, you know, makes people impoverished because we cannot, within our human nature being what it is, we can't acknowledge that there's other people who, A, can do things better than we can, and B, if they were unrestrained, they would not be, you know, lions or tigers that devour us. They would be noble elephants that build and and help us. 
and they have to be uncompromising. So when we see these Steppenwolves or whatever you want to call them, we've got to acknowledge it because they have to play by, you know, different roles than we do. Cause that's what it's kind of an elitist argument in some ways, but uh, it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it's a very common Nietzschean thing. Even people like Tocqueville talked about this unfortunate trait in America that everybody would rather be poor and equal than all better off with a few really better off. And I think that, that's a very important message. If you can get over that in your life, if you feel you're unique or you're talented and you have certain abilities, and then you see a guy that you think is a hack or a kiss ass and he's getting ahead or he has more than you, or your wife has poor health or your mom dies, or you, you can see all of the setbacks, unexpected disasters that, for the sake of God, you would be where that person is and you start to develop an envy and you translate that envy into formal policy and you start voting for uh, radical equality result mandates, socialists, sort of like California. And then she's trying to tell you that that's a very human weak thing to do. And you have to have these, un, you know, these uncompromising people to do. You need a guy like Elon Musk. He's going to be egocentric. Yes. But how many people can make have a space company or right. revolutionize the car industry or we can't. So well, what do we do? We hate Elon Musk. And she's I think the point of the book is to acknowledge that these people exist and to honor them and to let them let them do good for everybody. Yeah, it's kind they, of a na naive, but I think an, I, I a non-Christian way of condemning envy. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's goes back to um it goes back to um Hesiod's works and days where he the eighth century, early seventh century oral poet who wrote in Asco, a little town up in the mountains above Thebes. He said at one point there's two types of envy. And one and one causes Eros and Thanos and the other. It's it's the envy of emulation and the envy of resentment. And when you see your neighbor, he says it has a better field of wheat or it has a nicer wagon, then it says, Oh my God, you can make it. I'm going to make a wagon better than his. I'm going to put more manure in my field and my that competition is friendly and positive and everybody develops it. Or that damn guy, I'm going to go shoot his cow because he thinks he's better. It's They used to translate Hesiodic envy into the difference between British socialist life of the 1950s and American. So if you saw the proverbial Cadillac in America and you were driving a Ford, you walked up to the Cadillac driver and said, man, I like that car. How fast does it go? Uh, wow, it has air conditioning and a radio. Yeah. How'd you buy it? Oh, you can do that, huh? So you get it on top and you and that's the good envy. You want to aspire to get that and the materialist. Right. But in Britain, when you see a Bentley or a Rolls, you look around and you kick it to make a din in it and say that parasite, that insect that preys on the working man, I'm gonna damage his ostentatious, needless, showy. Right. And that's the difference in it. And she's trying to, I think, the objectivist view is that uh, 
whether you like it or not, communism or not, social, you're never going to get rid of talented people. And it's always a, it's always a race to let them express themselves and let them help other people because of their talent. And this idea of mandated equality is what destroys and makes life dreary and same and et cetera, et cetera. So she's well, trying to also excuse our, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's been a long time since I read The Fountainhead. But it's also the idea that part of the package may bother you, but so what? So they're arrogant. So Elon Musk tweets too much. So he's been married, I don't know, three or four times. So he's got 10. Who gives a blank? That's what her, she would say, given right. who, given his talent and what he does. By the way, Victor, on on the uh, I can't compare the book to the movie. I've not read The Fountainhead seen the movie several times it's a good say, movie don't you think oh I, I think i think other than his performances you know young abe lincoln that raven massey was just absolutely perfect for that role and patricia neal i i oh gosh she was so beautiful and and she was a great actress and, and garrett coop was Howard Rourke, wasn't he right he was and he was i think the that role was ideal for him i think i always found him a little wooden yeah. He was wooden. The thing about yeah. Gary Cooper was he wasn't a great actor in a multiplicity of roles, but he had screen presence. And you give him right. a particular aw shucks role and principal role, and he was just wonderful. He could yeah. take up the whole screen. We he know he really had good. another... We know he had another presence, but yes. we're not going to talk on that. No, no. <laughs> Will Kane. show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did did right. uh, our friend Will Kane at... Uh, Fox, you think you think his parents deliberately named him Will after after High Noon? I don't know. I never I'm have to ask him next time. Yeah, you know, Will is uh, he he was a very interesting guy. Uh, well, before that, he had started this the this uh, actually he had created some magazine in Texas uh, for what when. You know, Hispanic girls turn fifteen. I forget what that is called. The the celebration. Quincentera. I can't pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. But but a magazine. So it's like a bride magazine, but for that, and it was somewhat popular. And then he came to New York and he was filming these like uh, you know talk shows of Rich Lowry and somebody else in a Jewish deli talking about kind of re you know retro renegade. And then he did stuff with us, and he actually was considering becoming the editor of National Review Online. Will, Will Kane was? Yeah, yeah. Well, he this was, well, this was I don't know. He's, he's still 20, young. 2015. How, are you thinking of the same guy on Fox, the guest host? Yeah. Will but Kane, I, who does the Fox and Friends weekend. But I, yeah. I thought he was in his 30s. No, no. Will's, he's, well, he's not in his fifties, I don't think. But Will's, yeah, well, he's, he's very young looking. But yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know that he had anything to do with. I think they're called Quincy Quincy Aneras. They're all over my hometown. There's whole shops called yeah. Quincy Anero. But it's a but great 50, entrepreneurial 50, idea, yeah, right? Yeah, hey, let me is. create a magazine like that because women buy the young girls buy the dresses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he's very entrepreneurial. And I, I and he's a wonderful. I'm very fond of him. Pete tag Seth too. You know they tag team on the weekends. They're Fox and friends. He's one of those guys. If he's in his late 40s or 50s, he looks 30 years old. Yeah, you know, gotta envy him. 
<laughs> so wonder what I wonder what Aaron Rand would say about that. All right, Victor, we have uh, to get to uh, a big, uh, interesting question, and we'll get to that right after this important message. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Good listeners, I know you love what Victor writes and but if you're not if you're not subscribing to his website the blade of perseus which is found at victorhanson.com you're not going to be able to read the ultra articles that Victor writes two or three times a week for the website so you're shortchanging yourself uh I I suggest you subscribe. Very reasonable. Five bucks gets you in the door. $50 for the year while you're at the website. By the way, you'll find links to his books, uh, to other appearances, uh, Victor's on uh, various other podcasts and radio shows. So check it out regularly. Do subscribe. As for me, Jack Fowler, I write uh, Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil. And we are determined to strengthen civil society. And it's, uh, you know, I give a a dozen plus recommended readings. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. I think you'll like it. Many of our listeners have signed up for it. They know it's true that we don't sell the list, that we're not asking for any money. And it's quite enjoyable, I believe. And it even has a bad joke at the end of every one of them. So you go to simplethoughts.com, sign up for that. So, Victor, uh, another question from... Listener Kajrelwa from he happens to be from Connecticut. He was watching a World War II documentary on Turner Classic Movies about America's defeat of the Japanese. This was like an hour-long documentary, I believe. This particular film praised General George Kenney for his leadership in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, which was waged from March 2nd to the 4th in 1943, during which a Japanese convoy bringing troops to reinforce positions in New Guinea was largely destroyed. This helped relieve pressure on Australia. The documentary called this action the, quote-unquote, the turning point in America's war in the Pacific, although maybe it was more to do with the turning point uh, uh, related to the threat to Australia. Anyway, Victor, how important was this battle? Uh, what can you tell us about General Kenny, and including if your dad served under uh, his command in the uh, Army Air Force, and if he, your dad, ever held an op- opinion of him? I, mean, I know you've talked about your dad's service, um, and I believe your dad won the 
equivalent of a silver star for bravery for his service in the uh, in World War II. So, Victor, any uh, what can you tell us about this big question? Well, I don't know if it was a seminal battle. It was it, the losses were comparable to what we suffered at Pearl Harbor. I mean, they lost I think eight destroyers and half of their transports. And the idea was that after we took Guadalcanal and we were isolating New Britain, that's where Rabaul was, the big base of the Japanese Navy in the um, South Pacific. They had eyes on Darwin and they had actually bombed Darwin. And the idea with the Australians were isolated. They were closer to them than we were. And the British were in no position after the loss of Singapore and being bogged down in, in Burma and trying to protect India to protect, believe it or not, Australia. And they were very bitter because they had sent troops, you know, all the way to North Africa. And they had been, in, they had been, you know, they were, they were trapped by Rommel in the second battle at uh, Tobruk. So the United States had a commitment to help Australia. And one of that meant that we had to help stop them basing their operations and, Papua New Guinea. And so when they were, we got, we, and we'd cracked their naval codes. And so we knew exactly how many troops they had, what their destinations in New Guinea were. But the problem we had was um, that was a backwater. So we didn't have enough troops. We didn't have enough ships, but, and this was in a very critical transition period before at, at a time we were getting rid of the P-39, the P-40, P-41 fighters. Uh, we didn't have B-29s yet. The B-24s were just coming on. The B-17s were mostly given to Europe, and the earlier out-of-date models were in the Pacific. And we concentrated on – there was a good plane called the B-25 Mitchell Doolittle Use. The B-26, I think, Marauder was very good, better, but it was very dangerous to fly. It was too fast on landing. I think um, – Charles Lindbergh solved that problem for us. And then there was that A-20 that was pretty good plane. So they had medium bombers. Anyway, they'll make a long story short. The, the Americans sort of sent everything they had and they surprised the Japanese and they killed about 23,000 Japanese troops. They destroyed the landing cohesion. They sunk the, the, the destroyers. And they had to turn back. And at that point, they were never going to get back in in a serious way in New Guinea. And without New Guinea, there was no there was no way to have a, a launching pad against Australia. Their idea about Australia was very lightly populated. You know, Australia at that time was essentially Canberra and Sydney. And I mean, there was Perth and Dar Darwin, but uh, there wasn't a lot of population there. And there was a lot of resources. And the Japanese wanted that. And so at that point, they decided, and th and we had been very successful in the Bismarck Sea, which were which was where this took place with the Battle of Guadalcanal. And then there was five sea battles. People forget that, that even though we supposedly took Guadalcanal and had turned the tide, after those five sea battles were over, of which we won, I think you could say we won three and tied one and lost one. There was no, there was only the Enterprise. That was the only carrier we had. They sank the Wasp. They sank the Hornet. They had sunk uh, the Lexington at uh, Coral Sea. They sunk 
the Yorktown at Midway, and the Saratoga had been torpedoed. So believe it or not, we had, yeah, we had 18 Essex carriers, all better than what we had, each one of them, but they weren't online yet. So there was that critical period right around now where the U.S. Navy was in dire straits. They were just developing their submarine arm, and then this victory came, and it really gave us a shot in the arm. And then very quickly, these Essex carriers came online. We started to, the people started to get the early models of the uh, Hellcat fighter that replaced the Wildcat and Corsair planes coming in the Marine fighter. And pretty soon by end of 43, beginning of 44, the United States just buried Japan in terms of production and quality of arms. So this was that that transition point. And, the, and they didn't have a lot of wherewithal and they defeated the Japanese that were still considered, even after Guadalcanal, very formidable. And we did protect Australia and they never were seriously after that threatened Australia. And that was very important because you think about the the relationship between Australia and the United States, in some ways we were closer to them than the British even. And that was yeah. very odd. And we fought, they fought very heroically in Korea. They went to Vietnam. They were very prominent in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they've been there for us all throughout have their you, history. Have you ever been there? Yes, I have. Have you I, felt like some sort of camaraderie, some kind of... I did. I, uh, I took my son, William, and uh, I was asked to go to a, a conservative think tank and do a series of lectures with Joe Joff, the editor of Der Zeit in Germany. And he was a Hoover uh, affiliate. Oh, he writes for, so, yeah, he writes for Strategic. Yeah, he's a very smart guy, right. very pro-American, very unusual for a German and he and I gave some lectures together over about 10 days. We went to Canberra and we went to Sydney and uh, it was we had a good time. And I really liked Australians. It was a very funny story. If I can just detour, we went up to Queensland and my son was very adventurous at the, that age, at 18. I mean, he would get lost. He would just, I remember we, I said to him when we were uh in Melbourne, we're going to fly out of Melbourne tomorrow, 18 hours or whatever to California. And Bill, be in the hotel room by eight. I've got to go speak and go to a dinner. And he said, no problem. I get back at 10 o'clock, he's gone. <laughs> and so I walked over every bar at 11, 12. I thought, oh my, he's been Shanghai. And he, then I went to sleep. I thought, well, I have to cancel everything. And he just quietly comes in at two o'clock. I said, what happened? Nothing. What'd you do? <laughs> I had a drink. Where were you? I walked home. Were you lost? Nope. I said. He was He was sober? Yeah. Uh, well, he had to have something to drink. And, <laughs> and then the same thing, we went to Queensland. Uh, he said, I'm going to take a walk while you're at this conference. And I said, well, be careful. This is a weird country. So... He went to this sea park and a hike, and my Australian host said, where's your son? I said, well, he wanted to explore. I said, no problem, but, you know, this is uh, mamba season. So on the, the pathway into the nature reserve, there are black mambas, or the equivalent in Australia. And don't have him go on the beach because this is white, uh, great white shark attack season. <laughs> so... I got panicky. So I thought, well, you know, Bill wouldn't do that. So I came back and I said, well, where were you? And he said, well, I want to take a hike. And there was this little chain that said, 
I don't know what it said. So I just j- jumped over it and walked all to the snake path. And then I said, what did you do? He said, well, I went on the beach. You know, there was nobody there. It was so great. It was just warm. And I just went out and swam as far as I could in the ocean. <laughs> and I said, well, you were in shark and poisonous snake territory. You know, these handsome men are you know, He was always that way. Much, I, yeah. I, 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 he was like my, he's like my father rather than me. I mean, I'm a worry ward, but he is... He just has confidence to do stuff Every, like that. He was with uh, just another anecdote. Uh, we had to pull a 7,000 pound boat and I have a new diesel pickup. So I said, you know, I'll take your Toyota, 17 years old, and I'll follow you up and you can take the new. Well, they have a recall in the fuel pump. And I tried to get it fixed and they don't make the new fuel pump. So they just said, wait, and they haven't made it. So basically they said, you have a defective fuel pump in your new truck and it will go out. I have 18,000. It was like a time bomb. So he's got. Well, you're, you're ca- it's pulling a lot of weight and, yes. and going up. And I said to myself, it's going, going to go to up several yeah. thousand feet, right? And it's okay. Memorial Day weekend and it's yeah. packed on a four lane freeway. And yeah. he is pulling a 7,000 pound boat. And I'm 10 minutes behind him. And he calls me <laughs> and said, the whole car just froze. Yeah. Everything's out. It's uphill. I'm stuck. I thought, oh my God, he wasn't upset. So he yeah. found somehow he found an exit. We pull in, and he just matter of factly says, "You know what? We're going to have to take the boat off this truck. It's got the throttle light on. It's got the engine check engine emission light on. It's got a warning." I said, "Well, it's the fuel pump that's got filaments in the gas tank, and they and I'll, it'll sit there for six months because only Dodge." could sell you a truck and then immediately tell you that the Bosch fuel pump <laughs> is inadequate and they haven't designed a new one yet and you should not drive it, but we can't fix it yet. Oh. And I, I said to the guy at the time, well, why not you just take this one out that's got 18,000 miles on it and put a new bad pump in, right? It'll give me another 18. No, no, we can only give you the new pump. I said, well, where is a new pump? We don't have it. So I might pick up, I'm looking right now at the window. It looks beautiful. It's just sitting there and nerd. It has, yeah, a, okay. and I can't get it fixed. But uh, my point is, he just said to me, well, we have to be careful because we're up in an uphill grade. So if we take the boat off the one truck <laughs> and it weighs 7,000 pounds, it could go all the way down the hill. So we have to maneuver the other truck in that I was in, the old one, and hook it up. And so the next thing I know, he's carrying about an 80-pound boulder <laughs> and putting them under the wheels. And so we did it. And then he just said, well, I'll take the old truck. I'll see you. Be careful. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to go through yeah. life. Uh, yeah, it is. Not a it's very calm right. and not perturbed. Well, let's let's just take a break, and then we'll uh, – at uh, We'll conclude this episode with your thoughts about uh, the aforementioned General George Kenny. We'll do that right after this final break. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show, the 4th of July. Happy birthday, America. Uh, Well, you're still not yet officially communist. Um, Victor General Kenny, how did he rank as generals? Uh, I'm not, I know Curtis LeMay has been someone, uh, the same theater and maybe he was even his boss at some point eventually. I don't know. Well, he was, he was, he was, in the, he was attacked. He was, an. uh, he got the control of, uh, the South Pacific 
Air Forces, I think both Australian and British. He was a Supreme Commander. I think it was a three-star. And he did a pretty good job in concert. He got along with, I don't know how anybody did that, but he got along with Douglas MacArthur. Mm. Uh, but the problem was that he was at a point where he got to the highest rank. So when the war was over, he had done pretty well with a lot with not a lot of resources. But the thrust of the Army Air Force power and strategy shifted from tactical warfare of support and conventional warfare to strategic bombing. Right. And General Haskell had not done a good job with this new B-29 flying from India and China. And then they took the Marianas. And they made these huge bases in Saipan, Saipan and Tinian and Guam. But they were flying, as I said, you know, eight, nine hours to Tokyo at 30,000 feet. And they were burning these Allison Cyclone engines, which weren't very good. And they were burning them up, getting to that 30,000 feet. And they were only dropping four or five, 6,000 pounds was a lot. But mechanical, they were losing mechanical uh, to mechanical problems. They had their some very sophisticated Japanese fighters, and they were not doing the job. Right. And they brought in, they didn't bring in Kenny, they brought in Curtis LeMay. Whatever anybody said about Curtis LeMay, he was a certified military genius. He had, he had had the long, he had, he had established in a B-17, the world's longest uh, solo, I mean, uh, continuous flight all the way down. I think it was to Chile right before the war in a B-17. He got Bell's palsy right during the flight, and he just said, screw it, and put a cigar in his mouth, in his mouth to stop the dripping. And he oh, that wow. was, that's why he did that ever since. And he just took yeah. the B-29s, and he just took them down to 6,000 feet and made them into a huge dive bomber, basically. Level bomber, but low level. And they all were aghast. They said, we, we're up there. They, it's hard to get us. And he said, hey, you're going to save the engines. You're going to get 40 miles and increase speed. We're going to go in at night. We're not going to use the Norden bomb site. We're going to use Napalm, new, new development from DuPont. And their guns are geared to shoot us at 25,000 feet, but they're not geared to shoot us at six or seven or 8,000. And we're going to, and that Gulf Stream that blows all of our bombs off target, it's going to be our friend because we're not going to do precision bombing. I'm sorry if it's a war crime, then they'll kill me after they win the war. But for now, we're going to stop Japanese military production and we're going to drop incendiary napalm bombs at 6,000 feet. And when that, Gulf Stream hits, when that hits these explosions, it's going to take off and make a, a firestorm. That's what happened. And then he said, you know, I know you don't, he stripped the early B-29 raids of all their guns. He, he gave everybody an extinguisher. <laughs> and he said, I remember my dad said that they had, he was with Rosie O'Donnell. He was a very famous general. And they, they were all yelling and asking questions or captains and pilots where he was central fire control gunner. And he said to him, hey, Every objection they made, they had an answer. They said, oh, well, you're not going to be his arm, but you're going to be you're not going to be going 250 miles an hour. You're going to be going 350 because you're going to have the Gulf Stream right behind you. And it's going to blow you over Tokyo. Or you're going to drop the bombs with a Pathfinder. Big X will go ahead of you. You'll drop the bombs. It'll ignite all of Tokyo. And you're going to be out of there on your way home. And it, wor and it worked. But, but, but Kenny was not a part of that. And he was passed over for that. And then. The other thing to remember about him was he I think he was the original 
uh, general and start in charge of the Strategic Air Command. And he got a little dicey. In those days, the Soviets had a very long undefended border uh, in the, you know, near Alaska. And we were right. condu- conducting raids that were going inside Soviet territory to probe their d- defenses. And, you know, we had the B-29. Ingenuitive. Yeah, we had that <laughs> soup up. Uh, I think they were called what, B-50s. They were the B-29s of World War II, but they were outfitted with a new Allison Cyclone engine that that went from something like 2,000 to 3,000 horsepower. And they were going like 400 miles. They were really good planes. And then we had that crazy B-36, that huge plane that was twice the size of the B-29. And they were carrying nuclear weapons on patrol. And anyway, it was kind of a demoralized mess. He became a political kind of a right-wing figure. And they brought in LeMay. And they said, fix this. And he did. He did. Yeah. First, he went down to <laughs> North Fork and he saw the submarines and they were starting to put preliminary Polaris missiles, you know, on on uh, American submarines. He said, nope, we are the Air Force. Those are missiles. And he, <laughs> he had people point the paint sack on the submarines. Oh, my gosh. So oh. he was a. He was That's not during good. the war. That's after the war. After right? the war. He's, yeah, yeah. Okay. He yeah. saved. Uh, yeah. Kenny didn't do a good job with SAC. Right. LeMay. The thing about LeMay, to change the topic a little bit, everything that LeMay touched worked. Right. And everything he said didn't work. He was a 1964 running mate of George Wallace. 68, right. It's hard. And the, Kurt, yeah. that, Wallace and you know LeMay. Yeah. He, was, he, didn't, he was not prejudiced. He was right. very fair to African-Americans. He was an ecology guy. He was for cleaning up America. He believed he was kind of a health nut, even though he smoked and had his uh, liquor. But yeah. everything he did work. When he took was a colonel in B-17s, he flew lead formation. He created the stack formation. He calculated the collective firepower, the B-17 guns. Uh, in a type of formation, he cut down losses when he took over the B-29. It was it was bigger than the Manhattan Project, two billion dollars. It was a complete failure. These huge planes that were killing people, they weren't working. He mm-hmm. revised the maintenance schedules. He calibrated how many people would be killed uh, trying to reach the preferred level and going over Tokyo versus how many bombs would be dropped. And he fired a lot of the uh, commanders. He brought in his own team. They were wonderful. And he developed, he called in all of his uh, wing commanders and he, every week. And he said, what's working and what's not? And my dad said, one day they, you know, they, they would fly over and they'd see these dead on the cliffs of Tinian where these planes couldn't, they were so overloaded. They carried 20,000 pounds of napalm, 10 oh. tons. 10 tons going, you know, around, uh, you know, Mm. 1,600 miles often at night. And so they could see the wreckage of B-29s that went off the cliff. They couldn't make it. And then they had the protocol where they would rub up to, I don't know, four or 5,000 RPMs with their foot on the brake and then pop, kind of like pop the clutch and just boom off. And they had all of these things that LeMay allowed people to develop and, uh, he was a pretty tough guy. I remember my dad said that, you know, you always took your, for a while they had 20 millimeter cannon, they got rid of them, but the 50 caliber, every central fire control gunner was responsible for making sure that everybody took the 
on used ammunition out of the gun magazine and and because it could get like 110 there and one didn't and it sprayed one of the Quonson huts and killed a, co- a couple of people. I don't think they ever publicized it. So my dad said the next day he woke up and the guy was gone. <laughs> and everybody, LeMay let the rumor spread. They took him out and shot him. Of course they didn't. They just took him right there and sacked him and sent him home. But LeMay wanted the impression that if you're going to get Americans killed by sloppiness, then you're going to be shot. <laughs> Did your dad ever meet LeMay? Did he, he did. Well, he's been in a lecture hall with LeMay. And okay. all I remember, this is a funny story. I was um, 11 years old. My parents were strong conservative Democrats, but they did not like George Wallace. And Wallace had a, you know, in 1964, they were Kennedy people. And Kennedy got shot and most of the country voted for Johnson. Big mistake, but they, they did. But there was, excuse me, this was 68. And... Johnson wasn't running. And of course, Humphrey was running and Nixon and Wallace was this conservative, kind of like a MAGA, but without, but he had racist components, of course, although he changed, he became a, he became a decent human being by the time he died in the appraisal of many black people that voted. He was contrite and remorseful for what he had done in 1961 and two, although he's a terrible governor in that sense of his racism. But nevertheless, we were sitting in our living room and they had this press conference and there was George Wallace. And he says, and I want to introduce a great patriot who will be my running mate. And my dad just, and they that's him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. He put me at 5,000 feet, 40 (laughs) missions. I was supposed to sign up for 25 and then it was, 30 and then they said you got to do 35 and then you got to do 40 and then we had 16 planes in the squadron and then three got down and i said dad remember thumper he said yes thumper got get a big scrapbook of all the the nose nose cartoons and i said how about running rabbit dad was he one yeah running rabbit he bit it over kyoto we flew over it we couldn't bomb it but he got shot down and then i'd say how about Laughing Duck? How about him? Well, Laughing Duck, they blew up with a napalm. It got caught in the bomb. It was every, oh and he said, that God. was him. And when they got yeah. done out of the 16 planes, they had two of the original 16 that made oh, it. Oh, my. Wow. So he, but he, 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 he was, my dad was a funny guy. He was very funny. So he didn't get angry. He was just telling us. And I would go run up and I'd climb up in the bookcase and I'd get the big B-29 scrapbook. And I'd come out and there were like all the planes with the, they have pictures of everyone that they'd taken and given to people. So I go, oh, dad, dad, how about him, him? They had the picture of the crew and the nose art. It was very funny. I said, don't tell me. Dumbo made it, didn't he? Dumbo made it. Look, Dumbo made it. And he said, no, I'm sorry, kids. I said, what happened to Bunk? Oh, we had to go. We had a, a mining mission off Korean coast and Dumbo, just a freak accident. Dumbo was uh, got into a wind drift and he blew up and the, the mine dropped on top of him or the plane above him. They blew them all up. Oh, my <laughs> and, gosh. And it, was, it was like that. And then he was yeah. looking at LeMay and, <laughs> and my mom said, oh, my gosh, this man, this man, Bill, this man said he wanted to bomb Vietnam back to the Stone Age. <laughs> And my dad said, well, he did it once, Pauline. He'll do it again. <laughs> so they, wow. my dad had a good out. He liked LeMay. But yeah. um, he, everybody, everybody, he said, hated what he was doing. And then 
said that he saved their lives. Yeah, well, so larger than life, uh, one of the more he was. Than life he was. Uh, remember, uh, I'll finish today by remember we saw him in Doctor Strange of the composite Buck Parkinson, right. remember? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was the composite of two guys there. I think uh, it was a great what? movie. Sam yeah, that's a. Oh, I love that movie. I love it. But that was uh, that was a composite of Curtis LeMay. Yeah. And uh, remember what? that transcript of the Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, I don't know if you saw that uh, that scene in uh, Doctor Strangelove when uh, George C. Scott, he's kind of part. And the other one is Sterling. Uh, what's his name? Was the other Gug Sterling Jim, Hayden. Yeah. LeMay was. Uh, the Scott character and Stuart and Hayden were derivative of LeMay. And yeah. they're telling about how it's so dangerous. <laughs> and George uh, has got, well, we're going to go in there. And he gets into, and he puts his hands, well, we're going to go in here. And he says, I'm not going to say, you know, we're not going to say we're not going to get a little skin off or <laughs> lose a little skin in the process. And we can take a few nukes. And it's very, it's, it's scary, but it, it's very funny. And, and Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, it's uh, the bodily fluid stuff, too, is just. Yeah, uh, I don't know if LeMay, stuff. and that, I think that came from kind of LeMay, as I said earlier, he was a health nut. But also, uh, LeMay was a. He 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 kind of was an amateur race car driver, and he knew a lot about cars. There was a really good uh, biography by an American lawyer that I think I reviewed. It was really good about him. He wasn't the sinister, mean person he was. I knew a person that knew him personally. One of my cl- close friends, uh, who was much older than I, knew Curtis LeMay. And he hunted bear with Curtis LeMay. And oh, all he would do is uh, when I would go to these meetings, he was there, this friend. And I'd say, Jack, can you tell me a LeMay story? Victor, I don't want to tell you, but I will. Kurt and I <laughs> were yeah. up in Alaska. And yeah. Kurt, Kurt was at the base and Kurt did this. And it's that whole generation. We tend to hate them now, but my God, where would we be, have been without them? They were completely fearless. That guy flew as a B-17 commander mission after mission after mission right in the front plane. And he had a big fight. You can imagine the entire architect of 2,500 B-29s. And he demand they wouldn't let him do it. They, they threatened to, he wanted to fly the lead B-29. And well, he had all of his wing generals. They all did. Rosie O'Donnell flew right there. My dad said they couldn't believe it. They saw this two-star general and he was flying in the, in the lead plane. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. What a what a group of people. Well, Victor, we um, I appreciate all that. It's, it's really uh, intriguing and informative. And uh, I have to admit, I said that that question was posed by Kaj Relwoff, which, by the way, is Jack Fowler backwards. So that was my question. <laughs> so anyway, thanks, Victor, for answering it and all the questions you answered today and all the wisdom you shared. Thank our listeners for listening. And uh, happy uh, 4th of July. And we will be back soon with yet another and final special episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for putting up with my indulgences. (laughs) 